patriotism, faith, national unity, education, fiscal responsibility, civility, the values that define America. Fascinating stories and talks from America-loving patriots dedicated to preserving freedom, opportunity, and justice. Welcome to the Friends and Fellow Citizens Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 62 of Friends and Fellow Citizens. I'm your host, Sherman Tylowski. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you're having a great day and a great week. Before we get into our introduction of today's guest, just as a kind reminder, next month I will be making an announcement on a brand new way to connect with this program. It'll be a great way for me to communicate with all of you. Um, Make sure you check out uh, the November episodes obviously coming up pretty soon. I'll be making announcements on one of those weeks. Stay tuned. This is going to be a great new chapter for friends and fellow citizens, and I hope you will enjoy it. Also, be sure to hit that subscribe button when you're finished listening to this episode. I really appreciate all of your support every week, and I hope for those of you who are new to this podcast, I hope you will join us in this journey on friends and fellow citizens. Today's guest is Dr. Emma Humphreys. Emma is Chief Education Officer and Deputy Director of Field Building for iCivics, the nonprofit founded by Justice Sandra Day O'Connor to reinvigorate civics through free interactive learning resources. Emma serves as iCivics pedagogical expert, ensures iCivics resources evolve to a place of greater equity and deeper learning for all students, and advocates for more and better civic education across the country. She has degrees in political science and education and was awarded a James Madison Fellowship in 2004 to study the teaching of the Constitution. Emma has devoted her professional career to teaching, learning, and advocating for civic education. She began her career as a social studies teacher in North Florida, where she taught all levels of American government and history before earning her PhD in curriculum and instruction from the University of Florida in 2012 with an emphasis in civic education. I'm really, really excited to have her on board for today's episode. Emma, thank you so much for joining Friends and Fellow Citizens. So excited to be here. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, let's dive right into it. First of all, tell us a little bit more about your background and more importantly, you know, your inspiration for getting to the realm of civics, because this can be such a challenging area to get into. Um, tell us just a little bit about kind of how you got started and what drives you into in this field. Yeah, so I think the inspiration sort of started in high school. I was, you know, that typical kid who really liked, um, you know, student government president, right? So involved in all the clubs, student government. And we, we had a really robust student government where students actually had voice in issues that matter to us. And I could go sit in the principal's office and tell him what my fellow classmates and I would really like to see on campus. I also had an incredible uh, batch of social studies teachers. Um, that's really what made me so fortunate um, in my, I, I got a world-class education and I really got a world-class social studies education, just wonderful teachers. So I left high school knowing that I was going to major in political science. I was never undecided. It was never a question of majoring in political science. 
and, you know, loved it. Uh, I went to a national convention, a national political convention during my undergraduate career. Um, I interned in the U.S. Senate, just had a lot of really neat experiences. But, you know, eventually you get to graduation and you have to ask yourself, well, what am I going to do with this? And um, I looked around my classmates and everyone was like, oh, we're all going to law school. And I'm like, well, I don't want to go to law school. That's uh, I don't want to be a lawyer. Um so I really stopped and thought about, well, what am I passionate about? And uh, politics and civics and history and government was certainly one big thing. And the other was was education. Um, I enjoyed being a student and I enjoyed opportunities to work with folks and to, and to teach uh, young people in particular. So decided that instead of law school, I would go get my master's degree in education. And there began this career. Um, so I started as a high school history and government teacher in Middleburg, Florida. It was a community that was wholly different from the one in which I was raised. You know, I came from South Florida, where we jokingly referred to our social studies department as the socialist studies department, even though there was no indoctrination occurring, I assure you. And here I find myself in a, in a semi-rural uh, conservative community teaching government, teaching history, teaching, teaching civics. Um, enjoyed every second of it. Uh, loved it so, so much. Um, it's uh, what most people who have left the classroom will tell you uh, that they'll, they'll always miss the classroom and they'll always miss the kids. It's sort of everything else around it that they, they perhaps don't miss. Um, and that's really only gotten so much worse in the years since I've left the classroom. Uh, but I went back, uh, back to graduate school, got my PhD in curriculum and instruction and really focused on uh, civics teachers and their experiences. And I was really fortunate because at the time, um, Florida, when I first started uh, teaching and when I went back to grad school for my PhD, Florida didn't have a, a civics requirement. Like most other states in the union, I had to take, you know, one semester of American government my senior year of high school in order to satisfy my sort of civics requirement. Uh, but while I was working on my doctorate, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor came down to the Florida legislature and uh, she gave those guys a talking to. And she said, you guys need more and better civic education. And they agreed. And they unanimously passed the Justice Sandra Day O'Connor Civic Education Act, which mandated uh, a year-long seventh grade civics course with an end-of-course examination. And I share all of this with you because it's a beautiful case study in what it takes to get us to a better place in terms of civics. We need more Floridas. And I, I say that with a smile on my face. And I know when, you, when most people think of Florida, they think of Florida man and all the crazy headlines. And that is totally fair. But you should also think about really great civic education, and it's because they actually teach it in Florida. Um, and, and since then, we've seen that in a few other states, but, but not nearly enough. So I'm jumping ahead to my advocacy piece, of course, but um, all of that is to say that when I was uh, working on my PhD, I, because of this new civics mandate, I had this great opportunity to build curriculum for middle school civics and to study the teachers who would go on to teach it. Um, and that was all sort of this long road that that led me to where I am today at iCivics. Well, that's wonderful. And we'll absolutely obviously get into that more about the issues that face civics in America and some of the advocacy work that you've been doing, you and your staff and your team have been doing, which is phenomenal. Um, before we get to that, though, when it came to this, I guess you could say calling for civics, what have been students and parents and others have been saying for years about just the, the quality of civics education. I mean, you mentioned how little there is, but what, what about the quality and what have been some of the things that 
students and parents in particular have been most vocal about when it came to civic education? Well, to be honest, they weren't vocal at all. And that was sort of part of the problem. Um, and, and now they are vocal, but in a different way. Uh, but I will say, yeah, you're absolutely right. It was a quantity problem. It continues to be a quantity problem, but absolutely a quality problem. Um, the, the, the civics, your grandmother's civics course was, um, you know, stand and deliver, sage on the stage kind of teacher up there lecturing. It was, you know, read the textbook and answer the questions at the end. It was boring worksheets and diagrams. And and the only sort of fun innovation that ever entered the civics classroom was Schoolhouse Rock and, you know, I'm just a bill on Capitol Hill and and Three Ring Circus and Goodbye Kings and uh, and all that. But for the most part, not a lot of innovation in the civic space. And when most people would think of civics, it would probably conjure just really boring, uninspiring memories. Um, so, uh, you know, fast forward to today, we are now seeing people being more vocal and asking for more civics. And that's that's something we really welcome. And what's beautiful about that, Sherman, is that the, the calls for more civic education are really bipartisan. At a time when Americans can't agree on anything, it seems, we do agree that more civic education is a top solution to what ails our democracy. Absolutely. And I love what you said about that. And you know, the big challenge, of course, is to connect the need for civics alongside the actual results. And really, the results, if we, if I could start with that, uh, sure. can be quite concerning. You know, one of the stats I had reached out to you about, which is about the 2019 Annenberg Public Policy Center poll, which showed that 60% of Americans una- are unable to name all three branches of government. And now this is just one statistic out of many, but it, it just goes to show it when you also look at the generational gap too, seems like a lot older Americans can pass civic tests a lot more easily than younger Americans. Can you just provide a reaction to some of these stats and kind of maybe give an overview of what do you think is going on when it comes to these gaps in civics understanding and civics knowledge? So first, I have to I have to put you on blast and say that um, you know, Annenberg does this poll every year. And so we now have the, the 2021. Um, and I'm happy to report that the number got a little bit better. Uh, the, 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 the measurements got a little bit better in terms of civic knowledge, but they're, they're still not great. Um, and, and most if you look at uh, like fourth graders and eighth graders and the civics uh, national assessment of educational progress, known as the civics report card, um, you know, just ba- barely a quarter of students are even proficient in civics. And so my reaction to these types of stats are, and by the way, they've been very static, like not much has changed over the years. My reaction is like, Ugh, gr- that's terrible. That's a problem. Um, but also, can you blame people? You know, I'm not, I'm not mad at the people they're, they're polling. I'm not mad at the kids we're testing in schools. You can't blame people if they're not taught these things. And if you find that older generations know more, it's because they were taught at some point and, and very slowly but surely over time, um, the amount of time spent on civics instruction has eroded, as had the, the investment and prioritization of it. Uh, the federal government spends uh, $50 per year per student on STEM education and only $0.04 cents per year per student on on civics. And now to be sure, I think that uh, education is something that is in the, the purview of, of the states. But the federal government plays a big role in sort of what gets prioritized and what gets funded and what gets tested, by the way. And so, you know, uh, 
we're not putting our money uh, where our mouth is, or another way to say is um, you get what you pay for. And so it's not surprising to me um, that these numbers are so abysmal. But what's more concerning to me, more so than the lack of civic knowledge, is the declining faith in democracy. So um, there have been some recent studies showing that uh, younger generations do not believe it is as essential to live in a democracy as older generations. So for folks born before World War II, it's like 90% believe it's essential to live in a democracy. And that number plummets down to 30% when you look at millennials. And you know it's easy to chalk that up to, well, kids these days, and what do they know? Well, they know what we taught them and we didn't teach them about democracy. So what they know about democracy is what they see on TV when they're in the waiting room at the dentist's office or they go to visit their grandparents. And if you learned about democracy from 24-hour cable news, uh, you probably wouldn't think it's a great system either. So uh, that that worries me more than anything. I'm, I'm less concerned if students can answer a bunch of questions. Um, I'm more concerned that they understand uh, the fundamentals of democracy and that they believe, truly believe, that it is the best form of government. You know, I'm really glad that you brought up this concern about this loss of faith in democracy. What do the overall perceptions from the public on politicians, on elections, on the political system as a whole say about how far we have regressed in the area of civics and what we need to do to improve it and make it more sustainable for our country and for future generations? Yeah, I think it what it means more than anything is that you don't know how to evaluate candidates um, based on their their uh, sort of adherence to to democratic principles. Um, and I think it sort of makes it easier for us to continue that polarizing trend. Um, a- after I finished my PhD, I worked at the Bob Graham Center for Public Service at the University of Florida, Bob Graham uh, being the former Florida uh governor and U.S. senator. And, and Governor Graham would say that, you know, we used to play politics within uh, 10 yards of the 50-yard line, to use a football metaphor. And, you know, now we're, we're playing in the end zones. And I think that declining faith in democracy uh, plays a huge role in that. We're not so concerned about the common good as we are about me and, and my self-interest. Um, and if you're only concerned about your self-interest and not about the common good, then it's easy to just run to those end zones and to go to the people who you just, you like them and you agree with them on the issues and you're not thinking about the whole. So um, you know, this is a, a bipartisan across the spectrum, across the ideological spectrum issue. And um, I'm not saying that civic education can solve all of our problems and that you know, if, if all of a sudden we, I could wave a magic wand and every kid took three years of civics, that we would be in a better place tomorrow. Um, I think it's going to take some more solutions than that. What I do know is that all those other innovative solutions, of which there are many, will be for naught if we don't teach kids about their roles as citizens in a democratic republic. It, it's hugely important. It, and it's the long game. You know, we didn't get here overnight. This took decades and generations to get to a point where um, we are as polarized as we are and where the health of our democratic republic is as low as it is, we're not going to get out of this overnight. We're not going to get to a better place overnight. It, it takes time um, it's, you know, and it takes generations, but we've got to start somewhere. And the, the optimistic thing I can say is that 
we're, we're at a great place to start because young people these days care a whole lot. You know, it's really, really easy to just sort of, you know, think kids are just bratty and selfish and all they want to do is watch YouTube. And, and hey, all those things might be true, but they also care a lot about the issues. They, they care a lot about the world around them. They care a lot about the common good in the future. So it's a perfect time for us to start doubling down and reinvesting in their civic education. Sure. And now let's look at something that I've also been thinking about too, and maybe others in the audience have as well, which is the impact of social media and kind of how that fits in with the fabric of civics. Uh, oftentimes you see leaders, uh, politicians, representatives, you know, kind of do a bit of, for lack of a better term, bickering uh, over political issues and kind of brand it as like a form of civic participation or Worse yet, you know, I've seen instances where representatives say, oh, you have to literally like physically approach one of these representatives that I don't agree with and shout, shout things at them or uh, say bad things to them. How, what are the effects of these kinds of actions and activities on, you know, the faith in democracy as well as the civics realm, so to speak? Yeah, you know, I'm not I'm not a social media expert. Um, so I, you know, I want to I want to be sort of uh, measured in what I say and, and, and speak to what I know. I, I do think there's a lot of benefits. We've seen a lot of benefits to social media. And just from on a personal level, I, you know, wouldn't have two of the best jobs I've ever had, including the one I currently have, if it wasn't for some connections through through social media. But we've also seen young people get organized through social media and more people have voice. So there, there's a lot of positives, but I think we all sort of agree that there's a lot of negatives. And what I'm not sure is if the, if the positives outweigh the negatives. And right now it certainly feels like that's not the case. Um, and so I think the, the vitriol, I think the hiding behind the computer screen, I think the being willing to say something, um, through digital means that you would never have the gall to say to someone's face. You know, I think that's all extremely toxic. Uh, I worry about the the echo chambers in which we exist um, online. You know, the, these algorithms are really good at what they do and they're really good at sorting us and really good at making sure we're only hearing those viewpoints with which we already agree. That's really problematic in a republic. Um, I worry a lot about misinformation and I worry about... Um, individual's ability to sort of sort through the, the, the information that's there and, and, and make good value judgments about what's right and what's wrong. Um, yeah, I'm certainly not a, a real fan of, I don't even know what that's called, but the sort of like gotcha type journalism where you, you go and you corner someone um, and I've, I've seen this on the left and the right, and I'm it just sort of, I find it off-putting. It's just my personal opinion on it. Um, you know, I think you want to engage people in, in real dialogue. I To give people the benefit of the doubt, I'm assuming that those who are sort of doing these like shock attacks on people, I, I would hope that the reason they're doing that is because they felt that there was no other way to get through. Um because I would hope that they would have tried other means to <laughs> communicate and contact uh, an elected official or a public servant um, before, you know, cornering them uh, in, in a restroom or while they're giving a live interview or any of the other ways we, we've seen it happen. So, you know, I think just as a human being, I'm, uh, I have an aversion to these types of negative, uh, to- toxic interactions. Um, but I think that ultimately, 
if we teach people, if we teach people how it all works, if we teach people why it matters, if we teach people how to um, sort through the evidence and, um, you know, no one's trying to change anyone's minds here. It's not about, well, you should think this or you should think that. It's really more about you should know why you think what you think and you should have uh, legitimate facts and, and evidence to, su to support your position. And these are things that civic education can teach. Yes, we can teach uh, the, the seven um, articles of the Constitution and we can teach the, the principles of American government and we can teach the three branches and the Electoral College. And that, I think that's all important. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that that kind of basic knowledge isn't important. It is. But more than that, civic education can teach those critical thinking skills that you need um, to, to make sense of the world and all the information out there, uh, the sort of inundation of information. And it can help you learn how to talk to people and how to talk across difference and, and how to um, uh, engage in civ civic friendship and, and ultimately cultivate something that I believe strongly in, which is this idea of, of reflected patriotism, you know, clear eyed wisdom um, and, and love of country where you know the good and the bad, you've seen the warts, uh, you've seen the beauties, you've seen the triumphs and you've seen the failures and uh, you know all of it and you, you still love your country, but you want to work to bring her to a better place. Um, that, that's sort of what reflected patriotism means. And I think that for most civic educators, that, that's really the goal. Well, that's a wonderful new term. I, I never heard of that, but I, that's so that's that's Isn't so that great. Fitting. Yeah, I, I love and, uh, it. It's so fitting, and certainly when we get later on to the principles or pillars of Washington's farewell address, we'll certainly get to that. Um, but sure. before we move on to a bit more about your work at the University of Florida, uh, we hear a lot about the issues of something called voter apathy, which obviously is when voters just choose not to get engaged in an election or or whatnot. And it seems like there's a one thing that I've been exploring a lot, and something that might uh, that you might have looked into as well, which is a lot of fixation on Washington D.C. and what's happening there, where it, it could be really, really far away if you're living in like Alaska, or it could be really, really close if you're living in Arlington. But regardless, um, it gets so much attention on the news, and yet, even though m there's so many arguments of how state and local governments actually can actually materially impact people more proportionally compared to DC, yet they just, they don't get nearly enough attention. What do you think is kind of behind this, this kind of voter apathy in local and state elections? Um, and how, how can civics education kind of help address some of those holes, so to, so to speak, regards to coverage about state and local issues? Yeah, all, all politics is local, and the, the local certainly is going to affect your your daily life far more than the national. Well, even if you do live in the in the DMV, the Greater Washington D.C. area, um, I'm sure there are other factors behind it. The ones that are obvious to me are a we don't teach state and local. Um, so if you know we have like I mentioned earlier, we have this issue of instructional time for civics. The time that we do devote to civics and to government really focuses on on the U.S. Constitution and the federal government. And then if you have time at the end, which you probably don't, then you get down to, to state and local. So we're not teaching it. And this, by the way, is also true uh, in the college experience. You know, if you have to take uh, some gen ed credits, you're going to probably take that political science federal government course, but you might not take the state and local one. Um, 
even I, as a political science major, could have squeaked through with only taking American federal government and not taking state and local. Um, so that that's a huge problem just in terms of teaching. Another problem that is more recent is the uh, the sort of uh, death of local journalism. Um, you know, it's and not that it's you know I don't want to put a nail in the in the coffins prematurely, but we've seen a major decline in in local journalism. You don't have people covering local elections. You don't have people covering county commission or, or town hall meetings. Um, you don't have folks talking about the, the local issues like they used to. And, and that's a huge problem. So when, when folks are consuming media, it tends to be very national in, in scale. And so they think that that's like, that's where it's all at. And that's where the action is. And that's what I should be invested in. And to be sure, I want folks to pay attention to what's happening in Washington, D.C. But you know, if you're a Floridian, I want you to also be paying attention to what's happening in Tallahassee, your state government, uh, your state capital rather, and in Orlando or Miami or Tampa or even Middleburg, Florida, where where I taught. Um, but that's harder to do because of that uh, that decline in local journalism. And it, and it's it's not just a problem of attention; it's also a problem of accountability. Um, the role of journalism, of course, is is to not just inform the people, but to hold government accountable. And um, yeah, you you could have entire city council meetings and not one journalist in the room. Uh, that's 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 a shame. And it, it's sort of scary for, for democracy. Absolutely. And let's move on now to a bit about your work. And one of the things I found very interesting is you worked not just have conducted research at UF, but also have worked with the Florida Joint Center for Citizenship. And you mentioned earlier, the Bob Graham Center. Tell us more about the kind of work that you did and really the significance of your work as it relates to civics and the, this new word that we haven't really mentioned a whole lot, which is citizenship. So um, just share a little, us a little bit about that. Yeah. So the, the Florida Joint Center for Citizenship is a uh, joint effort between the Lou Fry Institute for Politics at the University of Central Florida and the Bob Graham Center for Public Service at the University of Florida. Um, I will say that the, the Lou Fry Institute at UCF is a little bit more focused on that K-12 experience, where the Bob Graham Center at UF is more focused on, on higher ed. But there's this shared mission of educating young people and uh, improving the civic health of uh, Florida communities of the state, and then, of course, uh, for our part in, in the United States of America. When I was working on my PhD, I had the good fortune uh, to be involved in the rollout of the Sandra Day O'Connor Civics Education Act. And what that meant was I was able to develop curricular materials for seventh grade civics teachers and also conduct professional development. So go out into communities and train teachers on how to teach this. And, and this is a big deal because you, you want to see this type of policy where civics gets mandated, where civics is actually taught, but you can't just assume that you have a community of teachers who know how to teach it. In fact, what we saw in Florida was overnight, geography teachers became civics teachers. And these are folks who may or may not have uh, majored in political science. Um, and, and so they weren't prepared. They didn't have the, the deep content knowledge. Some did, but a lot of them didn't have the deep content knowledge necessary and they didn't have the instructional materials. And so we sort of swooped in to provide all of that. Um, and when I say we, I mean, I was part of a great team and that work continues, even though I'm not there anymore. And so a major hat tip to the, the folks at the Florida Joint Center for Citizenship who continue to, with very limited resources, 
pump out high quality instructional materials and, and train teachers both in terms of content and instructional strategies. Now, for my part at the Bob Graham Center, that was I had a great time. I was there for five years. Right as I was finishing my PhD, uh, I, I accepted that position there and got to work with young people uh, and to really think about careers in public service and think about their roles as citizens. Um, and I, when I say citizens, you know, I don't necessarily mean in a legal sense. It can be, you know, to me, it's like if you have a pulse, you're you're a human being, you're a citizen, you're a member of communities, regardless of your legal status or, or whether you can vote. Although those latter factors, of course, um, have, you know, important bearings on what you can do and what you can't do in terms of participation in government. But for my my role at the Bob Graham Center was really neat. It was, you know, working with young people who, who cared so much um, and were looking for mediums, outlets, platforms to sort of take their passion and their civic dis- dispositions and, and put them into action. You know, at the start of the podcast, I talked about being a political science major and not knowing what to do with it, just knowing that I didn't want to go to law school. Well, that's because when I was a political science undergrad at UF, we didn't have the Bob Graham Center. And so I wasn't able to see for myself a career in public service beyond just, well, go to law school and make some money and then one day run for for office. And for sure, that's a legitimate pathway that a lot of people pursue. And it's a great one. But there are other ways to get into public service. And those were ways that I didn't know until I uh, started working at the Bob Graham Center. And it was really fun to present these opportunities to, to young people. And Ultimately, what we were doing was giving them learning opportunities, sort of uh, modeling ways of being engaged and giving them um, sort of like a like apprentice, master and apprenticeship type thing where you're, you're in the shop and you're learning how to do citizenship, how to conduct research, how to register voters, how to uh, just attend public talks and learn more or go intern in Washington, D.C. or intern in in Tallahassee in our state capital. And that type of experiential learning is so transformative. And whether the students go into public service or not, uh, they will always take seriously their, their roles as citizens, which is the one thing that ties us all together in a in a university. When you're, you know, you're when you're at a, a big university, you've got multiple colleges, multiple departments, multiple majors, multiple career paths. But what ties everyone together, other than their love for their school's football team, of course, is the fact that they are citizens. And um, from my vantage point, that should be sort of top line mission of any institution of learning, including higher ed, uh, is to to cultivate the knowledge, skills and dispositions of citizenship. Wow, I love how you tie that in with the school because that also seems more local too because you know students and faculty right. and others. I share with you my uh, concerns about uh, law school. I, I definitely, the biggest thing, the biggest obstacle for me for law school was the LSAT and I absolutely dreaded that thing so much. Um, I, I already aired my- I never took it. <laughs> I already aired my grievances on the LSAT in a previous episode, so I'll spare the time for everybody this time. Um, <laughs> but um, all right, well, I, now I want to move on a bit to uh, your organization, which is iCivics. And I'm still learning more about the organization. It's such, and there's so many big objectives, but could you give us an overview of you know the mission, uh, what you guys do, and really the even from the very beginning, the founding of iCivics and how that how that all kind of ties in together with civics and citizenship overall. 
Yeah, it's actually our founding story is really a neat one. It's really a beautiful one. So um, everyone knows Justice Sandra Day O'Connor was the first woman on the Supreme Court. Um, And if you ever asked her about that, what she would always say was, well, I knew I didn't want to be the last, um, which meant she really, truly understood that she was carrying the weight of an an entire gender and representing us uh, on that court. But that's not why she founded iCivics. She founded iCivics because she she had retired from the court to care for her ailing husband. Um, and uh, it was only a couple of years later that that her beloved John passed away. And, and Justice O'Connor still had a lot of fight left in her. And she was really concerned about some of the things she was seeing around her, some of the trends in, in government and in politics. The thing that concerned her the most at the time was the uh, attacks on the independence of the judiciary that we wanted to have more elections of judges and we wanted to um, have you know, term limits for judges and just people more and more not understanding uh, the role of the courts and, and really attacking their, uh, their independence as a branch. And so she wanted to do something about that. And so she founded iCivics to teach kids about the, the importance of the judicial branch and the, uh, the sort of principles of judicial independence, but soon realized that, well, the problem sort of goes beyond just the, the third branch of government, that we have a fundamental lack of civic knowledge in, in this country. Something that she would often say is, uh, knowledge of democracy is not passed down through the gene pool. You have to actually teach it to each generation anew. And that's precisely why she founded iCivics. Now, Justice O'Connor is a brilliant woman, and um, she knows what she knows, and she knows what she doesn't know. And when she doesn't know something, she goes to the smartest people to ask them what they think. So she went to teachers. She went to the experts and said, tell me what you need. And they said, we need innovative, engaging, off-the-shelf, ready-to-go solutions. Don't give us another textbook. Don't give us a whole learning package. Just really great sort of plug-and-play resources. She then spoke with a friend of hers uh, named uh, Dr. James G., uh, sort of the father of educational gaming. And and he took her aside and said, Justice O'Connor, I think you should make video games. And I don't know exactly what he said to her. My guess is that in a very compelling way, he showed her the research and, and convinced her that this is the way to go. And she listened and uh, we started making video games. And that's really what we're most known for. Um, iCivics is reimagining civic learning for the next generation, and we're doing that in a lot of ways. But when we first started out 11, 12 years ago, it was through video games, Um, single player role playing games that put students in the driver's seat of important civic government actions or positions that they couldn't otherwise hold. Right. So. Um, you know, when you're a seventh grader, you can't run for president. And when you're a senior in high school, you're not going to serve on the Supreme Court. And when you're a a sophomore in high school, you're not going to run a constitutional law firm taking pro bono cases in which people's uh, bill of uh, constitutional rights have been violated. But these games allow you to do all those things. Um, And they're really fun and they're really effective. So fast forward 12 years, we have a, a full middle school curriculum We have a growing library of high school resources and elementary resources. We're the largest provider of civic education materials in the country. And um, we're just a really beloved brand. If you you ever meet a a government teacher and you ask him or her about iCivics, they're going to say, oh, I love iCivics. And if I'm ever on a plane and I'm telling people about what I do for a living, it's not uncommon for a little head to pop over the seat and say, you work for iCivics? I love your games. I played your games in middle school. And uh, 
that that's a lot of fun too. So that at our core is what is what we do. We create really uh, engaging, effective civic learning materials, and uh, we put them in the hands of teachers and students for free. Well, that's so wonderful, especially the story about Justice O'Connor and um, just all the barriers that she was able to knock down, not just a Supreme Court justice, but I love the fact that when she left the court, she found that passion, that driving in to do more. And that's what's so remarkable about Justice O'Connor. And um, I, I, from what I can, from what I've heard about her, it uh, sounds like an amazing, amazing person, she amazing really person to, to speak with. And Sherman, I want to tell you that um, she considers iCivics to be her true legacy. Now, anyone who hears her name, you know, Sandra Day O'Connor, they're always going to think first female Supreme Court justice. And I'm sure she's proud of that. But what she really wants to be remembered for is founding iCivics and really, uh, again, reimagining civic learning in the United States. That's truly warming to hear. I mean, I love, again, this energy and this drive to push for something greater than oneself. And this is what it's all about, this idea of public service. Thank you so much for sharing that, Emma. Let's now go into something that I found also interesting too, which is the way that you're able to turn video games, something that is always viewed as recreational, and turn into something not only recreational, but educational too. Tell us more about what this video game civics, if you like, does to enhance civics education? Yeah, you know, one of the core values of making educational video games is to make them fun. Now, there are a lot of folks out there who say that they make ed education games, or they're, you know, they're doing game based learning. And really, what they're doing is just taking like really boring classroom activities and putting them on the computer, uh, like flashcards. Like that's, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about really fun games based on really fun gaming principles like, you know, Diner Dash as, as one example. Um, and our, our most popular game, Do I Have a Right, is sort of built on that model. It's about fun. It's about engagement. It's about challenge, like the right amount of challenge and leveling that challenge up. Um, and it's, uh, I think it's also about um, comfort level. So a lot of students have damaged school-based identities. Um, and that's hard for a lot of teachers. A lot, most people go into teaching because they love school and they had really positive school-based identities, but a lot of students don't. And they might be hesitant to participate in the class or speak out. Well, when you're playing a video game, it's not you. It's this avatar that you, you, know, you might create to look like you or you might not, but it's not you. And you're able to take risks and learn and um, and get feedback, and that that's really the the power of games. Um, but more than anything, that they're fun and they're replayable. So one of my favorite stats, you know, we we track all sorts of of, of metrics about um, how many times our games are played and stuff like that. But my favorite stat that I ever saw, my favorite metric, is when you could see that these kids were assigned. It's like 11 a.m. on a Monday, and clearly their teacher assigned uh, Win the White House to them, our, one of our popular games about the Electoral College, Win the White House. So these kids are playing the game, and it's like third period. And then you see later in the day, that game and that same zip code have this spike in traffic. And what that tells us is those kids are just going home and playing some more because they had so much fun, and they want to get a higher score. They want to beat their teacher. And nothing is cooler for me than to hear these stories of teachers who are like, I had to kick the kids out of the classroom. They didn't want to stop playing. They, they didn't want to go to recess or lunch because they were so into the game. 
that's awesome. And that does not, you know, that is not what Civics was like for a lot of uh, older generations, including myself. I, like I said, I got a world-class social studies education, but we never played games like that when I was in school. That's so awesome. Like I, I wish I had that experience, right? Because, you know, uh, you gotta, know. there's gotta be a space in school for video games and oftentimes it's 99% of the time it's not in the libraries or it shouldn't be in the libraries, but in the high, at least in my high school, you know, everyone was there. A lot of, a lot of the people there were playing video games and everything, but it's like, Oh, what if it, what if you could actually do that in the classroom instead of having to feel like, Oh, I hope that the librarian doesn't see me playing video games here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we, you know, we've, uh, we've worked on librarians. They're pretty cool, pretty cool cats. And, uh, they, they've opened up to this idea of game-based learning and, uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're big allies for us. And oftentimes because that's what the computers are, you know, so we really, we rely on them, uh, to, to let the kids in, if you will. That's right. And if you could share maybe a, a story, a quick story or testimonial about one of these kids or maybe a parent or someone who has been part of iCivics and has had a bit of a, you know, a, maybe awakening or maybe a new way of looking at civics. Uh, what is something that you you think you could share about that? And what and an example of really how iCivics has played such a role in the in the realm of civics? Yeah. So, you know, games are just one actually now small uh, component of what we do. You know, they're flashy and they're exciting. And so we get a lot of attention for them. But we have a full library of materials and we um, we have a lot of other initiatives and things we do. One thing we do is our uh, youth fellowship where we bring in a demographically, geographically diverse group of young people from across the country um, people who really care about civics, and we treat them as experts in civics. And so these are young people who have played our games and learned from our materials, but now they're also having this intensive fellowship experience with other like-minded peers, people who, young people who just care about their, their civic education and the issues around them and care about the common good. Um, and that's been really transformative for, for some of these young folks. And to see them translate that learning and that fellowship experience into actual real world action. Um, we had a young man out in uh, California who lobbied his school district to switch to more environmentally friendly buses. And he, you know, he worked with the, the superintendent. Um, you know, he, he went through all the proper channels and then he ultimately made his case using evidence about why uh, this was a good thing to do and why it was a feasible thing to do. And, and he was successful. The, the, the school board unanimously approved his proposal uh, to start slowly but surely implementing a plan to have more eco-friendly school buses. That is just one example among many. But I think what we're trying to do at the end of the day is to give students the knowledge and the skills they need and also cultivate them, cultivate in them a disposition uh, towards engagement, uh, of caring and wanting to be involved and, um, and just knowing what to do and be willing to do it. Um, whether it's my goodness, we really need a streetlight on this dark street corner cause it's really dangerous, or we really should switch our buses to more environmentally friendly buses or, or something bigger than that. Um, but young people knowing how to make change and how to work with others, um, one thing I'd love to share is my favorite definition of a citizen. It comes from uh, Dr. Peter Levine from Tufts University up in Boston. And Dr. Levine defines a citizen as someone who asks 
what should we do? I love this definition. I love every part of it, right? So, so the what implies that there is, you know, it's not just sort of assumed that there's one right answer, right? That there's a menu of choices or there's a whole array of choices and you have to figure out the, the best one. And, and that's where you get to that should. Like, what should we do? Not just what can we do? We can do a lot of things, but what should we do? That we, of course, being collaborative, uh, suggesting that you probably shouldn't try to go it alone, um, that you would be more successful if you had uh, more people working with you. And then do, what should we do, right? So implying that something actually needs to be done. Um, that to me is the goal of civic education, is to uh, raise a generation of young Americans who asked that question and feel like they have some knowledge and some power or agency to actually answer it and then act based on that answer. I love that quote so much. Then, uh, and I love how you went through every single word because every single one has that meaning. He does it so much better than me, by the way, Sherman. You should you should get him on your podcast. He's, he's brilliant. <laughs> right. He's thoughtful. He's one of the most magnificent human beings I know. And to hear him walk through it carefully through every word, uh, every word of that uh, very short but powerful sentence is it, it was sort of. Um, it was, a, it was a major paradigm shift for me in how I think about the goals of civic education and, and what it means to be a citizen. Fantastic. Uh, I'll, if, I, if I do get in contact with him, I'll definitely mention your name for sure and send him the link to this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Please do. Uh, well, what is the vision for iCivics, especially when it comes to working with uh, leaders? And uh, I mean, I'm sure you, you do that already, but in terms of like a longer term vision, what, what, are, what do you see the vision for iCivics? Yeah, so it, I, we have a vision, um, and we have a, a really ambitious strategic plan to help us achieve that vision. And our vision is for a, a thriving, healthy constitutional democracy supported by young people who are knowledgeable and skilled and engaged in these uh, important um, areas of citizenship. So we're not going to get there just by writing more lesson plans or making more games. Um, we also need to see more states teaching it. We need more instructional time. So we have a, a an influence strategy that we support called the Civex Now Coalition. comprises over 170 organizations from all across the political spectrum and all across the country who are committed to uh, seeing more and better civic education across the states. And it's a it's a multi leveled strategy. Um, based on our federal system. So at the national level, we want to see that investment and we want to see that prioritization much in the same way that we've invested in and prioritized STEM education. And then across the states, we want to see state legislatures mandating uh, more instructional time for civic education. We saw that in Florida. We've recently seen it in Massachusetts and Illinois. And it works. When 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 students in these states, you know, sort of matriculate through this, they they graduate with much more civic knowledge than if they hadn't um, lived in a state that actually taught them civics. Uh, it goes all the way down to the the school district and, and local level, and working with them to pilot innovative civic education programs um, that allow for inquiry and student voice and um, just robust curricular experiences, professional development for teachers, right. All those things that you need to ensure a, a comprehensive and deep civic learning experience. And so we're doing our best to advocate for that at, at all levels and, and to work with the people in those communities. So I, something I always say is that, you know, we're not carpetbaggers. We don't just go to a state and say, here's what you should do. Uh, instead, we go to a state and say, hey, 
we see that there's people here who really care about civic education in uh, the Commonwealth of Virginia, for instance, or in uh, uh, in the Golden State. Let's get you all together. Let's provide you some um, some data, some statistics, some policy language, some some policy menus, some sort of ideas for how you could implement this in your state. But then ultimately, like it's up to the people who live there. It's up to the residents of that state to to push for that and to lobby their own state legislatures to to make that happen. And, and we're just happy to play that supportive role and say, how, how can we help? But that really is the long-term vision. What we want to see is every kid in America having access to a high quality civic education. Um, you only get there through those multiple levels of our federal system. And so um, that's where we're, we're, we're pushing the hardest at, at all those levels. I feel like you know, iCivics is not just a civics organization, but it's an American civics organization. That aspect of you pointing out the the federalism aspect of our country, uh, it's, it's I mean, it's so fitting, right? Because you, you do provide civics in a fun manner, but you also are are such a close supporter of the system too. And uh, it's just it's really wonderful to see the the American aspects of it. You mentioned the reflective patriotism aspect too. I, I definitely see that coming from you and from the organization. And um, I I really I, I love that vision. Thank and you. This, this this is a good tie in, I think, to our final part of our episode before we wrap it up. And that's really on the reflection of. You know the principles I've I've put out for this podcast coming from Washington's farewell address in 1796. Um, Emma, if you could find maybe one or two or multiple ones um, of these pillars, uh, which ones would you think are most relevant to what we talked about today and kind of the work that you've been been able to do over the course of your career? Goodness, I think. Um... Most, if not all of them, um, you know, we talked about reflective patriotism, and I think part of that uh, plays into into faith, faith that um, we can always do better and be better. Um, another big uh, principle that our work really leans into is our our nation's original motto, "E pluribus unum," out of out of many one. Um, we think national unity is is really important, and. Um, we think it's important to integrate the perspectives of Americans from all different different backgrounds, um, but also doing so in a way that can be a, a common story and a, and a shared inheritance of, of all Americans. And I think that's what I want to say more than anything, Sherman, is that we're you know we live in highly polarized times where everyone wants to sort of paint you on on one end of the the football metaphor political field here. Um, and I, you know, I just don't think that's healthy. And I, I know a lot of social studies teachers, a lot of civics teachers across the country, and, and they're not here for that. They're here for that plural, but shared story of America. And they want to teach their kids about the wrongs of the past, but not make their kids be cynics. And they want their students to be appreciative of the founding of our United States without just being sort of blindly uh, loyal we want that that balance, that um, that reflective patriotism. Again, that clear-eyed wisdom, and um, for us, that's what it's all about: finding that balance. It's not easy to do that right now. Um, the the environment in which we're trying to do this work is really fraught, and we've taken hits from the left and from the right. But I can tell you, 
Um, from the bottom of my heart, we work every day to do this in a way that is nonpartisan and um, that truly seeks to cultivate the the unum and and the pluribus um, all at once. And and goodness, with more civility, please, please, more civility. You magically tied all six of those somehow into that answer. That's that's quite remarkable. I couldn't even do that. It took me six episodes for me to, to do that. <laughs> but if you want to add any closing remarks and uh, just a couple of uh, ways that people can follow, you know, what you're doing and what iCivics is doing, that'd be great. Yeah, sure. So, you know, what I want everyone to know is that there's there's so many people across the political aisle working so hard to, to make things better in our country and, and for particularly for civic education. And I have the the honor of working with folks, um, you know, from representing such a diversity of viewpoints, uh, but we all sort of share this common uh, love of country and commitment to educating kids for participation, democratic citizenship in our, in our constitutional democracy. Um, if you want to learn more about the, some of these efforts, uh, www.civexnow.org, that is that 170 and growing organization coalition committed to improving civic education, particularly at the policy level throughout the country. We, of course, are iCivics, www.icivics.org. Everything on our site is free. Uh, if, you, if you're a teacher and you want access to everything, create that free teacher account. But if you're just a, a citizen or just a citizen, as if that's not the most important thing, but if you're a citizen or a student and you just want to play our games, just jump on and hit play and choose from one of our uh, 15 games and, and have a blast. And then lastly, there's a, a large effort we've been involved in over the past few years called the Educating for American Democracy Initiative. And when you hear me talk about things like reflective patriotism or um, e pluribus unum and, and teaching the, the good and the bad, a lot of that inspiration comes from Educating for American Democracy. So uh www.educatingforamericandemocracy.org. You can teach our, you can read our roadmap, um, roadmap for strengthening history and civics education uh, in the United States. It's all there. Um, But, but please just check it out, join our cause. And if nothing else, um, expect that young people should get a high quality civic education. We would never let it fly with our kids not being taught how to read or how to do math, or how to you know learn the scientific process, we should not be okay with them not learning how to be citizens in our democratic republic. Um, we just need to not. We just need to fight that norm and um, set that expectation that all kids deserve a high quality civic education. And um, our form of government one hundred percent depends on it. Wonderful. My goodness. That's going to be so much great stuff for people to check out. And again, I'll make, I'll link those below. But Emma, once again, I really appreciate you coming on to Friends and Fellow Citizens because you work so hard on this. I, I know that uh, you and countless other people, as you pointed out, are working towards something bigger than just yourselves. You're working on the whole system and and helping those so they can not only find their identity within the system as citizens, but also contribute to it and make it better, which is what it's all about. And uh, I know that a lot of representatives and leaders and people all across, I think all across sectors too, I think really appreciate the the work that you do. Um, So Emma, once again, thank you so much for coming on to the show. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Sherman. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Make sure to check out the links that Emma has provided down in the show notes below. 
Also, make sure to subscribe to our email list if you haven't already. It was announced last week, but you can get a chance to get the latest news, special announcements, bosom material, and much more content from friends and fellow citizens. Check it out at shermantaloski.com in the show notes below as well. Have a great rest of your day and rest of your week. And remember, a day in America always gets better when we are with our friends and fellow citizens.